uh, with Mary. Uh, yeah, one day uh, she came to the door when I uh, came uh, up to the house with um, the mail. And uh, after uh, a greeting, she started uh, enthusiastically talking to me about this uh, young black student that they were uh, helping out. And she referred to him as a foreign student. Did you ever um, meet this young student? Well, uh, I don't know if it's uh, some months or even a year later, uh, there was a, uh, a young man, black man, walking down the street uh, just after I had delivered the mail to uh, the heiress home. And he greeted me and he was very polite. Uh, he was nicely dressed and formally dressed. And immediately he entered into conversation with me and told me that he had uh, taken the train out from Chicago and he had come to uh, thank the heirs uh, family personally for helping him with his education. I asked him, I said, well, now that you're out of uh, school, what are your plans? What are you going to do? And he said, and he looked right at me, he says, I'm going to be president of the United States. Are you certain that this was the young black male you saw in front of the Ayers Hall? I am absolutely positive that it was Barack. Did, did he say what year this was? Does anyone know what year, roughly? I, I don't know if he mentioned it. It was just kind of zoned out. I knew what I distinctly remember her saying in her description of him. That was in the sentence that he was a foreign student. Oh, while he was yep. a student. While he was a student. Yep. What the frick, dude? There was still one more connection between Ayers, Obama, and Dorn. The law firm of Sidley Austin. Now I know I've come across Sidley Austin in my dig somewhere. I can't, wish I could remember for the life of me where I did, but I know I came across them somewhere. I don't know if it was in the Spence stuff or, or somewhere, but I came across it somewhere. Now that's really interesting. So he mentioned it while he was a student. Barack Obama. Um. When were his student years? Let's see, he first became member of the state Senate in the 90s to 2004. And even before that, he was saying, I'm going to be president. Like he knew he was gonna be president one day. He was made like a made man, right? So this is really interesting when you take into account what I covered with May Day the other day. Um, which mentioned a, was it like a dark horse, remember? Uh, a, a dark horse running. Anyone remember that? I wish I could remember which, uh, which one of these it is. Um, let's go through history, maybe. So it wasn't yesterday, it would have been Tuesday, right? Yeah, there's Dark Horse. Here, this has got to be it. 
Yes. Dark horse. Running. Now, what does that Greek say? I believe the Greek actually says running. Yep, run. So running a dark horse. Oh, wow. Right? And they said this in 2004, which was, I believe, when he was running for Senate. And he clearly knew, based on that interview, well before that he was going to be president. And they say in this letter, see, uh, we'll finish off with this. I'll read it again. You and I haven't met and probably never will in the world of time and space. There are more of us involved in this than you realize, but we all wish you well. You know we admire your work and we admire very little. Your Christmas present is coming early, Brian, because we shall be unusually busy during Advent. Some of us will be traveling. It takes intense effort to produce the kind of change we desire, and the opposition is very strong. Most of them are stupid, but they almost make up in numbers what they lack in intelligence. This is talking about the people they call pigs. It's you and me, pigs, capitalist pigs. A very few of them are unnaturally cunning, and like all rare gifts, they are the most dangerous. We have tried to keep you out of their focus of interest, which explains why not as much has been explained as you would like. We can now tell you a little more. One of our projects, here it is, one of our projects has reached critical mass and cannot be stopped by any mortal power. It is better that you not know what it cost to reach even this preliminary point. You have received occasional small presents of gold, blah, 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 blah. Talks about essentially saying it's so funny to watch the pigs selling their souls for, for money, scrambling while their country is like falling apart around them, scrambling for money when it's going to be their downfall. Uh, it is amusing to see the opposition scrambling for what destroys them. Wow. So while you and me and the rest of us are busy just trying to scrape by it's opening the way for the worst evil. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, it's it's a messed up thing, is back uh, in years gone by, efforts like this were opposed because people saw it and they saw a direct effect on their own lives. Nowadays, they have modified the way that they do things. And they, lead, they, they push the ball forward, but not enough that it rocks your boat. They, they push the ball forward, but not so much that, that you lose your everyday creature comforts. And that's what's keeping people from actually getting, like really getting off their ass and doing something. Um, it's, it's that, you know, your everyday life doesn't uh, change enough. I mean, obviously it's changed, but not, not enough to the point where the people are literally rising up like, like, uh, like no one's business. Right. Um, and if I, I don't mean to demoralize anyone, I saw someone out there mentioning it. Um, and I don't think you should be demoralized by what I'm saying, because what I'm telling you is that it's not that you don't have any hope. It's that your only hope is you. So maybe if you're being demoralized, you ought to take a look at why that is. Why, what is it about you and what you're doing or not doing that's demoralizing you? Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's no hope. I'm saying the only hope is us really getting off our ass and doing something because it's our, it's 
it's the only way this changes. Um, and if that demoralizes you, well, maybe, maybe it ought to be kind of scary because it is, this is scary. This is, uh, we're, we're on the verge of the destruction of the United States as we know it. Um, if we don't do anything. All right. I love you guys. Goodbye. I'll see you tomorrow. And we'll, we'll finish that documentary tomorrow. All right. All right. So um, we've got a lot of stuff to cover tonight. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed the guest that we had on yesterday. I thought that was pretty fun. We might be having another guest joining us next week, Mr. Steve Franson. We're trying to get the date settled. It's possibly tentatively the 16th. So that should be pretty fun. Um, I have dropped the link to show prep out into live chat we're going to go ahead and get into the show you know i want to hopefully we'll have the time at some point to finish um sigmund freud and the secret holocaust by eustace mullins i'm going to try to get there today but i do have some other stuff that kind of takes precedence first some things i wanted to cover that i think you guys will find um highly relevant to what's going on uh, right now so um, make sure that you're following me on my personal YouTube channel. I post my show archives there occasionally, not every, not all the time, because I already have a, a strike against me there. So as long as I know I don't have to worry about any kind of copyright things, it, I put the archives there. But my audio archives always go up on my Anchor podcast. You can also follow my Telegram. I use that quite frequently in my Gab Digging Deeper account. So tonight's show is called Into the Storm. I uh, Obviously, if you were listening earlier, you heard um, Mr. Pam discuss the documentary that we participated in. And the only reason that we did so was because uh, we watched some of the other things that um, Mr. Colin Hoback had done before. And um, he just seemed to be somebody who would probably be the best person to tell that story. Um, having seen terms and conditions may apply. Uh, he obviously is somebody who cares about uh, internet freedom. So that was interesting to me. And um, he also seemed to be somebody that understood too that the technical aspects of how the boards even work like that's sort of the shit test right for these like mainstream journalists or reporters or these filmmakers and documentary people if they're looking into q do you understand what how the trip codes work and how the boards work or do you think someone's logging in to an account with a password <laughs> that's what i was gonna say that's what i was gonna say what what's your username yeah okay. right <laughs> and so um i think that uh, i found that very interesting he sort of passed that shit test um and also it was somebody the code monkey said look this is the only person i'm going to talk to and you know, like us has turned down all of these scumbag mainstream media people that wanted to speak to us and stuff. We've always just said no, but this one uh, I think is going to be different. And I think it should be interesting as well, because he, he, it seemed to me that his goal was really to just like tell the story of what had been going on for the past three years. 
And I thought that was a pretty, you know, judging by his previous work could be pretty uh, fair to us. So I thought that was nice. Um, anyways, that's, that's, that's the only, as an outsider, that is the only fair way to say it yeah. and or for, for them to, to go about it. Um, yeah. you know, and I do, I think it's going to be, ex, ex, you know, accurate. I think, I think it's going to be hit and miss. I think though, because as soon as I saw some of the people that were going to be in it, it's just, it's just a big smear, but it's, it's not going to be, I think it's going after all the people that are around it. Not necessarily like all the anons, all the people that were involved in the, in the board itself. Right. Yeah, no, there he spoke to everybody. He wanted to hear everybody's side, right? So he spoke to the mainstream anti-Q people to get their side. He spoke to, he was wanting to speak to every single person that was like a baker at one point or everyone that was a board owner. And then he wanted to talk to, um, you know, Ron and Jim. And uh, it looks like he followed them for quite some time and filmed their part of the story. So while I think, I don't think you can judge it based on the trade is basically what I mean. I think it's going to have everybody's side of the story in there. And I think it really is going to be sort of like a, um, so, like a you decide type thing, right? Because if you watched his other documentary, Terms and Conditions May Apply, that's sort of how he left it off was basically like, this is both sides of the, the story you know, what do you think, you know, it's up to you to decide like what you think is right. That's I think fair, you know, fair and balanced, I guess. Okay. So anyways, um, that we're, we're going to look at my article on this, by the way. So we're not going to, we're not done with this. Um, but, uh, the other than that, uh, there's a couple other things that we're going to get into tonight. We're going to talk about Biden's announced uh, cyber attack on Russia over the solar winds thing. If you guys remember, we covered an article from Whitney Webb where she was talking about basically all of the companies involved in solar winds were Israeli. They're like Unit eighty two hundred connected uh, companies, so they're they're tied into like Israeli military intelligence. No surprise there. Um, so, and so have we have we checked? Um, you know, the follow page of or the uh, what is it? Antifa.com goes to the White House. Have we checked that site to see when they've scheduled this 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 uh, military <laughs> the response? Surprise! <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he, you, know, one of, <laughs> you know, he, he always joked about that during his term about, we're not going to do that. But like, then you realize and you go back, you're like, Oh my God, they did every single time they announced, okay, we're going to go do this and this and that. And you're like, so wow, it's just, <laughs> holy crap. <laughs> it's like, you would think that that wouldn't need to be explained. Like it would just be a thing, but it's, it's, you're right. It wasn't like before trial. So I yeah, think, this yeah, reminds me. Somebody, someone says here, uh, initiate, uh, what does it say? Fire declared, uh, and recommend it, activate your disaster recovery plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, this is just like ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Um, but I feel like they're preparing member. Like they said, they were good. Klaus Schwab talking about the cyber pandemic. So it's good that that's where we're, we're kind of going to cover that today also to kind of show where 
they're sort of headed with that narrative. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's, and then we're going to talk about, well, Silicon Valley and the problems there. And then hopefully we'll have time to get back to Sigmund Freud, uh, the anti antichrist devil and fraud. So, um, anyways, that's what we're going to get into tonight. Uh, if it would work. <laughs> The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. We are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. You guys know what this represents? Well, the You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. What's going on, Mr. President? You'll find out. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy. America is governed by Americans. Infiltration instead of invasion. On subversion instead of elections. On intimidation instead of free choice. The corporate media in our country is no longer involved in journalism. For them, it's a war. And for them, nothing at all is out of bounds. Man will be what he was born to be. Free and independent. Darn right. We have a new psalm tonight. And uh, Little Ree did the entire um, graphic here. She designed this. Um, she picked out the hummingbirds and the cherry blossoms. So this is all Little Ree. <laughs> psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their boughs. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright heart in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteousness, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. Scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteousness. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Amen. Amen.
Hey, man. I haven't heard fire and brimstone described so cutely before. <laughs> right? <laughs> she is growing up so fast. That's right. And she does, I think, read with expression. Um, I think she did very good. And I'll just zoom in on this a little bit so you guys can see how good she's getting in, in Canva. Look at this. She put this hummingbird, she sized it and she moved it right here. And then this one. So she's learning very fast how to use these programs and stuff uh, like Canva. She has so much fun doing that. <laughs> you know, it's good that she's learning this stuff now too, because one day she could be very good at graphic design. So good for her. I mean, sh shoot, she's still seven. <laughs> She's going to be eight very soon, though. And she read the whole psalm this time all by herself. So there there you go. All right. Um, we have a quick video from 316 Exposure entitled, What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what I wonderful. of the rainbow, so pretty in the skies, also on the faces of people going by, I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do, they're really saying. Psalmist observed, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you cared for him? Psalm 8, 3, 4. We live on a wonderful world, a remarkably designed for life. And the more we know about our planet, the more amazing it is that life exists at all. And as I was researching for this sermon, I ran across a site that told of 154 different factors that would need to be in play in order for life to exist on any planet. I'll leave the link below. Those factors point to the fact that ours is a unique, wondrous example of God's creativeness. For example, scientists have determined that we're in Goldilocks region of our sun. We're not too far away. We're not too close. We're just right. In other words, if we were much closer to the sun, we would be cooked to death. If we were much further away, we would be frozen solid. More than that, during its next orbit around the sun, if the Earth were to deviate by only a fraction of an inch, every 20 miles or so, we would either freeze or fry within a year. In fact, our planet is tilted with regard to the sun in a very Goldilocks kind of way. As the Earth revolves around the sun, it does so at a constant 23 degrees on its axis. And because of that, our planet can support far more life than if it were perpendicular. If the Earth wasn't tilted, the poles would be colder, the equator would be hotter, and less of the Earth's surface would be livable. Some night, look up at the moon. Our moon seems to be a lifeless dust ball in the sky. And that's because it is. Even though the moon is roughly the same distance from the sun as we are, the temperatures range from 214 degrees above zero to 243 degrees below. No life can exist on the moon. But if it weren't for that lifeless moon, our Earth's oceans would be dead. See, the moon's magnetic attraction on the Earth creates the tides for our oceans. If the moon were much bigger or closer, ocean tides would overwhelm us with waves the size of tsunamis. But if it were much smaller or farther away, the tides would be almost non-existent and life in the oceans would be impossible. And those are just a few of the reasons that we know we live on a wonderful, life-filled world. And there's a reason for that. Genesis tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created our planet to be like nothing else in the universe. Back in 1968, uh, Bill Anders, an astronaut in the Apollo 8 space mission, which was the first crewed mission not only to leave the atmosphere, but to circle the moon and return. Uh, Bill took pictures of the earth while in space that had been very popular because they showed us the earth in a way that mortals have never seen. And reflecting on that, he said of our planet, it was the only color we could see in the universe. And what's interesting is how God created the world. He created life and said, it is good. He created vegetation and said, it is good. He created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and said, it is good. And he created the sheep and the oxen and the beast of the field. And he said, it is good. But then he created Adam and Eve. And do you know what he said then? He said, it is very good. And so the psalmist asked, What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8.4 When the Bible tells us why God is mindful of us, why he cares for us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Genesis 1.27.28 Genesis tells us that when God created everything else on the earth, he spoke it into existence. He said daisies and daisies will pop up out of the ground. He said, elephant, and there'd be a huge amount of dirt that would shake itself off, and there'd be an elephant. But when God created Adam, he did something in creating him he hadn't done for anything else in creation. And I can visualize him kneeling down in the mud and beginning to shape Adam from the dust of the earth. Some believe that God may have started with the feet and worked his way up, but I think it was more likely he began with the head. This is where the mind is. This is where the nerve center and the spinal cord begins. Then God began to work his way down the body, and he shaped and formed his arms and hands. 
you can almost see sparks coming from God's hands. And then, when God had completely formed the man, he breathed into man breath of life. The point is, God has created us in his image, and that means that God created you in his image. One of my favorite verses is out of Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for God works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, God has created things for you to do. You don't have to do them, but they've been set aside just for you and only you. When you become a Christian, it's like God hands you a key to the gate of a vast garden of possibilities that are yours because you've been made in his image. But now there's a problem. While scripture teaches us that we have been created in God's image over the years, that image has become warped and wounded. It's kind of like going to a scratch and dent sale where a store would sell you an appliance that had once been a beautiful showpiece, but now nobody wants to pay full price because it's been roughed up. It still may have some of the inner workings, but it's just not as pretty as it once was. So it's not nearly as valuable as it once was. I remember a video I saw once where people said things like, sometimes it's hard to tell I'm made in the image of God. Sometimes I don't feel much like I'm in the image of God. And sometimes I don't believe I'm in the image of God. God's perfect, but I make mistakes. God is all loving, but I don't know how to love. I keep falling, I keep failing. So how could I possibly be in the image of God? I also remember a documentary that I watched. It was a story about a woman who had been arrested for prostitution. As the woman was dragged into the police station, you could tell life had been hard for her. She was dressed provocatively, and although she was attractive after a fashion, her eyes showed a weariness and despair. As she was sat in a chair next to the arresting officer's desk, she looked over at him and said, really, I'm not like this. This isn't who I am. In her heart of hearts, this prostitute sensed something about her that wasn't a harlot. Deep inside her soul, there was a feeling that she had damaged who and what she really was. Now, that prostitute may not have felt bad about herself when she compared herself to other prostitutes. She may have thought, well, at least I'm not as bad as that woman there. And in that way of thinking, she was probably not that much different than most other folks. There's lots of people who find comfort in comparing themselves to neighbors or their fellow workers or a relative. On a scale of one to 10, they may come in at a six or seven, but at least they're at a point or two ahead of that other guy. And this prostitute may have been able to find comfort in that fact uh, compared to some of the other prostitutes or the pimp that ran her life. And she was at least better than some of them. But once she faced judgment, she suddenly realized how dingy and depressing her life had become. Yeah, I'm a prostitute, a loser, worthless to most people, but this isn't who I am. This isn't the kind of person I was meant to be. In her heart of hearts, she may not have understood the theology of it all, but she sensed the truth that she had been made in the image of God. But she messed up. She damaged and warped something special. How could she ever make it right again? And that's the question. If I'm made in God's image and I've damaged that image, how can I make it right? How am I ever going to regain that image I've lost? Now, this is where it gets good. This is where the genius of God's plan is shown to us. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us about the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in Colossians 1.15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus. You and I were made in the image of God, but we kind of messed up. But here we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we could just find a way to wrap ourselves up in that image of Jesus, if we could just find a way to put Jesus on us like a coat, 
then maybe we'd be okay, wouldn't we? That's exactly what the Bible tells us God wants us to do. Galatians 3.27 promised us, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. When you and I became Christians, we were buried in water, and then we were raised up of that watery grave to a new creation. We went down into the baptistry of a warped image of God. Then we came back up wrapped in Jesus, the perfect image of God. So when we put on Christ in the baptism from day one, God looks at us and sees his perfect image on us. But was that all God did? I mean, was this like having some kind of spiritual cosmetic surgery? When we put on Christ in baptism, did we just get a facelift? No, God didn't stop there. When we got wet on the outside, we got changed on the inside as well. Acts 2.38 tells us that to become a Christian, we need to repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, when we put on Jesus in baptism, God put his spirit inside of us. And the spirit starts tinkering with us. God's spirit is now inside of us working tirelessly to remake us and remold us in his image so that we begin to look more and more like the one who created us. So for me and you, it comes down to recognizing who we are and who we were born to be. And again, thank you for listening. If this message has moved you or helped you in some way and you'd like to give, there's a link below located in the description. And uh, again, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. And until next time, God bless you and your families. Be safe. Thank you. All right. I apologize. <laughs> Once I started playing that, I get this like pop up, of course, that interrupts me every freaking day because it wants me to do its stupid updates. And then I just like delay it. And then the next time it comes up is like the next time I'm doing my show. So I guess like after my show one day, I should just like manually update it so it doesn't do its stupid pop up. Good Lord. But every time I do that, it just like, it messes things up. I mean, come on. All right. So <laughs> um, I wanted to include this just as a reminder to everybody of what we're up against. Um, here we've got uh, martyred priests, right? They could have rejected their priesthood and saved their lives, but they didn't. Under Bolshevik persecution, 300,000 priests were killed during the communist era. They actually had an easy way out. They could have just rejected their priesthood and been set free. They could have kept praying in secret, even singing in church choirs, as long as they rejected their calling. Yet so many of them chose death. What people are ready to die for reveals with startling clarity, what is actually valuable in life? I mean, can you imagine being ready to die just because something frustrated you? For example, if you didn't get your newspaper in the morning, no, people are only ready to sacrifice their lives for something 
incredibly, immeasurably important, something priceless. That's absolutely correct. So 300,000 priests, Christian priests, killed by the Bolsheviks. That's what we're up against. Okay, so the first thing I want to look at is a geopolitical cyber war ratcheting up. And remember, um, you know, we talked about Klaus Schwab talking about the cyber pandemic that 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 would be like the next pandemic would be the cyber pandemic so um obviously this is something that's being manufactured right uh, I I think that's just obvious, and I think that we've seen all these uh, data breaches, too, in recent years, and I believe that that's all part of uh, the same uh, plan, right? They're causing these uh, data breaches to happen for a reason, because they want to have an excuse to have to reset the entire system, is a geopolitical cyber war ratcheting up by Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. There are two separate stories in today's blog, which, when considered together, have me wondering. Uh, the one was shared by W.G. and the second by B, somebody named B. Uh, and a, a thank you to both for taking the time to pass them along. The first concerns a recent hack of the Pentagon's Microsoft servers, and the second, a recent policy decision by the Bidenenko regime. I love that he, <laughs> I love that he calls it the Bidenenko regime. I think that's fantastic. It sounds uh, just the, that's the perfect title for the communist uh, regime that it is. And so here's the first article, Pentagon assessing systems after tens of thousands of servers compromised in global Microsoft hack blamed on quote unquote Chinese hackers. Now remember, in the Whitney Webb article that we looked at, she predicted that this would happen next. Microsoft admitted that some of their uh, source code had been compromised in the SolarWinds hack. And But we also looked at how Microsoft's biggest R&D center is in Israel, how all of these companies that were working with Microsoft and SolarWinds are Israeli and tied into Israeli military intelligence. Um, so, you know, one of the things she said, well, is this, this is going to be the next thing that they use. It's going to be some Microsoft hack, you know, and, and we could see that they were leading it that way. So this article says um, the U.S. military is reviewing its networks following a hacking spree linked to a vulnerability that gave backdoor access to tens of thousands of Microsoft Exchange servers. In a massive attack, the company is blamed on China. We are aware of the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center's report. We are currently assessing our networks right now, dot, dot, dot. So um, Biden preparing, here's another one, Biden preparing to launch a series of, quote, clandestine cyber attacks against Russia, New York Times. Well, if the New York Times is putting it out there, it's not clandestine. <laughs> 
uh, for Pete's sake, as um, as Pinata was saying earlier. Did they list the IPs that they're going to be riding through and all that? But they, you know, might as well. Clandestine, yeah. We're going to use this data center, okay, in five Jeez. days. Yeah, I mean that's what this this is like. What we're dealing with here. Not surprisingly, the Microsoft Pentagon hack is being attributed to corporate fronts for communist China. Um, so the U.S. military is reviewing its networks following a hacking spree linked to a vulnerability that gave backdoor access to tens of thousands of Microsoft Exchange servers in an attack the companies blamed on China. We're currently assessing our networks right now for any evidence of impact, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby told reporters at a Friday presser. We're also taking all necessary steps to identify and remedy any possible issues related to the situation. Situation. Joint Force Headquarters is coordinating with the NSA and Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. This is CISA on guidance and directives to make sure we can protect DOD networks and IT systems. A little too late for that. Microsoft announced the massive cyber breach on its Exchange email platform earlier this week, noting a vulnerability in its servers had given, quote, long-term access, unquote, to hackers, while attributing the attack to a group named Hafnium, an allegedly state-sponsored outfit operating out of China with a quote-unquote high confidence. Now, whether or not communist China actually did hack Microsoft's Pentagon servers, and I have no doubt that they can and would and probably did, is beside the point here. What I find intriguing is that a narrative seems to be being prepared when one turns to these statements in the second article. The Biden administration is gearing up to carry out cyber attacks aimed at Russian networks. The New York Times has reported describing the problem provocation as a retaliatory measure designed to send Moscow a message. Citing officials familiar with the operation, the Times said that a, quote, series of clandestine actions, not anymore, unquote, aimed at Russia is expected to begin over the next three weeks. Oh, so they're giving us the time frame. They're <laughs> telling us it's happening and that the cyber attacks are intended to be evident to President Vladimir Putin and Russia as intelligence services, but not to the quote-unquote wider world. Well, good thing we uh, we announced it to the world then. Yeah, right. Good that we told everybody so that they know in advance and, you know, can prepare for it. You know, I, I, have to, I, I know. I have to, I have to th wonder, though. Are they trying to just say and pull the old tricks um, leaving the server in the bathroom and uh, what's, what's this, what's the little Massapequa or whatever, or, or Chappaqua or whatever. <laughs> Are they right? trying to pull that? They're like, Hey, um, we're going to quote unquote attack you. Um, if there's anything you guys want to go in and clean up, you know, uh, you know, we're going to be going through these different routes. So, you know, the, now that you have this, this time frame software, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like now that you have this software that can basically go through everything and crawl through everything. Here's the routes that we're going to be going through. I don't know, this this reads to me like they're gonna like they're 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 literally going to like um just do something that exposes us. Like oh, you know that's, what I mean? Yeah. 
I feel it feels like this. Whatever they're basically announcing something that is going to end up being failed, and then they're going to announce some other hack later. Yeah, I, that definitely seems to be the goal. I mean, it's not. <laughs> Obviously, it's not like the Biden administration's biggest priority is protecting America. <laughs> Clearly not. Um, so <laughs> it continues. The allegedly imminent cyber attack, clandestine, remember, has been framed as a retaliatory measure in response to the high-profile solar winds breach. The hack, first reported in December, provided backdoor access to a widely used network management program distributed by the Texas-based SolarWinds company. The hackers were able to use the exploit to compromise the system of more than 100 commercial firms around the world, as well as nine U.S. government agencies. Described as one of the largest and most sophisticated cyber attacks to date, it took eight months before the breach was discovered. Remember, there was a contractor, an Israeli contractor, that was working for Solar Winds. That was essentially the only company that had access during the time frame that they believed that this was inserted. It had to have been this this Israeli company. So we know it wasn't Russia that did it. It was Israel, in fact. Washington has argued that the attack could have only been carried out with the assistance of a foreign government. <clears throat> I just told you who. U.S. intelligence agencies have alleged the hack was, quote, likely Russian in origin, unquote, but has not provided evidence for the claim. Moscow has denied any involvement in the incident, calling the accusation yet another unsubstantiated attempt by the U.S. to smear Russia. So Dr. Farrell says, again, I have no difficulty believing that Russia can and would hack a nation's networks, a foreign nation's networks. And again, whether it did in the instance cited is really beside the point here. For again, a narrative seems to be being prepared. We'll get back to that in a moment. Let's face it, any major power probably has such cyber warfare divisions in most of its intelligence agencies. Britain has admitted as much in the U.S. just did by the Bidenenko regime's announcement. Needless to say, these two articles have my high-octane suspicion motor running in overdrive. For, as I've often stated in blogs, having nothing to, uh, in blogs having to do with cyber warfare and other covert intelligence operations, those types of things are games two people can play. Bidenenko has announced it plans some sort of message to Mr. Putin to get him to crawl back to the table. But that won't be evident to the general public. Yeah, good luck with that. More probably, it will simply provoke a measure of like retaliation. There's something much deeper bothering me about the context for all of this. First, were the alleged Russian, Chinese and Russian hacks coordinated? Possibly. But digging deeper, <clears throat> just saying, <laughs> I recall those strange attacks in California in recent years. One on an electrical substation at the southern end of Silicon Valley and the other a physical attack on internet cabling in San Fran, 
freak show. In both instances, and particularly the first, the attackers were in and out in a matter of minutes and were assessed as being quote-unquote professional jobs, just the sort of things that spec ops and intelligence might do. I've blogged about these attacks on this website. Simply search on the website for California substation attack and various articles and blogs will come up. Then there was a similar incident in Arizona a few years ago where the internet cable between Flagstaff and Phoenix was physically severed. He has a link to that article as well. My point in raising these stories is to point out that one, hacking is only one way to conduct cyber warfare, and two, that it appears to have been going on for some time, and that's what disturbs me, because now such incidents, given the narrative preparation we are seeing, can be presented as foreign interference. Electrical power grid hacked and shut down, it was Russia. Internet servers down, blame it on China. Again, not that they wouldn't have the capability of doing such things, but such things could be done by anyone with boots on the ground and hackers in a bunker. One could cloak such actions done by oneself by blaming it on someone else. One could accomplish several stacked operations and agendas all at once, interfere with a segment of the population one doesn't like, which is not on board with the agenda, while blaming that on foreign interference, which might be construed as an act of war. Indeed, policy pronouncements on this score have already been made. There is a story from 2011 by the Wall Street Journal linked. Add to this technologies that can mimic and cloak actions as, quote, acts of God or acts of nature, the inconvenient tornado or earthquake or systems of rain that seem stuck in places that feed the Yangtze River, and you get the picture. See you on the flip side. So I found that interesting because... You know, our guest yesterday obviously had, uh, we had played his uh, documentary, Frankenskies, which was about weather modification, geoengineering, weather control, how they're able to guide and seed hurricanes, um, potentially tsunamis, and, you know, in fact, possibly the U.S. could have been responsible for the 2010 Haiti earthquake. Now, that's very disturbing also when you consider the Laura Silsby angle there, right? Um, the, the child trafficking. So I think that I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, and pretty astute um, thing uh, for Mr. Farrell to be pointing out. And we have covered on this show um, for since the foundations of Digging Deeper, all of these data breaches, all of these cyber security issues, and the fact that they're clearly building to something with it, right? And uh, I think he's absolutely correct. You know, they could they could use this to shut down a, a large portion of the population and our ability to connect with each other and to communicate and go, oh, well, that was a foreign uh, cyber attack, and people would believe that. So the next thing I want to show everybody was this. Tucker Carlson had talked about women in combat roles, right? Like women in the military. And this is something that I've spoken of myself because I just think that it's, 
it's very bad having women in the military. I mean, we've talked about uh, how you have to lower standards, right? Just for women to be able to get into some of these like combat zones, um, to get, to be able to get into things like the green berets. I think there's one female green beret. Uh, it's, you, you literally have to, um, lower the standards and they're doing that in a number of ways. It's not just f- to allow women into the military, but they're also doing all this woke stuff right now where they're taking away um, like it, test scores and it, it, basically the entire merit-based thing. And they're now using racial quotas in the military. Well, you know what this is. This is the result of all of these movies where you see all these like female characters like basically fighting off giant men yeah like, right? total and fantasy it, right and it's like I, I guess it's i guess the propaganda works i mean if it's, it's, yeah. i can i can look i can go watch a movie like that and then and suspend like I, you know not even suspend i just like i can take it and be like okay that's fine I, I i'm not gonna ruin a movie just because of reality <laughs> movies aren't aren't reality anyway so what's the point but the left has problems differentiating between fantasy and reality, between fiction and reality, between movies, what's in movies and what is in real life. Uh, that's always been the case. They've always been that way. Their NPC brains don't understand and like don't compute that just because you see something on the television doesn't mean that that's a real life, right? The, uh, the girl boss nonsense. <laughs> so um, we're going to play this clip from this guy. Uh, but Pedro, I think, was so spot on. It's like, yeah, we're going to have pregnant women fighting in the military next. Rawr. Come on, guys. That's totally what we want, right? He says, so civilians are subordinate to a military class that conflates advanced liberalism and obedience to anti-life bureaucracy with patriotism serious question apart from career slash money incentives why should anyone join the military today now just listen to this nonsense this guy from space command says drama tv my response to mr carlson's comments on women in the armed forces this is total virtue signaling nonsense drama tv ladies and gentlemen that's what i call it I'll apologize up front and tell you that I don't have cable news at home. I don't have it here in the office and I don't watch a lot of drama TV. I understand some comments were made yesterday and I watched the clip that Mr. Carlson produced as he referred to pregnant women in the military. I'll remind everyone that his opinion, which he has a a right to, is based off of actually zero days of service in the armed forces. Let me offer you my opinion. My opinion is based off of 28 years of actual service in the military, 28 years in the Marine Corps, in combat operations out at sea and in garrison. And so he was talking specifically about pregnant women in the armed forces today and how it makes us less less lethal and less fit and less ready. Let me tell you where he's wrong. Those decisions were made by medical professionals, by commanders and our civilian leadership that allows for women to have more time with their children to recuperate, to get fit and ready, to take that time that's necessary that our medical professionals know is needed which actually makes us a more lethal and ready and fit force, ready to fight the wars of today and the wars of tomorrow. The bottom line is that we value women in our our armed forces. We value those that have served in the past, 
and we value those that have served today. We value our families in the military. I want to say God bless everyone that is serving today. God bless the women that are serving today. God bless the men and women that are serving today. God bless our country, our partners, and our allies. Let's get back to work. Let's remember that those opinions were made by an individual who has never served a day in his life. Let's remember that's all about drama TV. God bless America. Semper Fidelis. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, look, I could I could see if if he's talking about women participating in some way uh, in military operations, I, I would be thinking more like planning and strategy. But women in combat, we know, isn't a good thing. Um, I just thought that was kind of bizarre. So um, Pedro says, it never occurs to these people who have spent their entire lives living in bureaucratic bubbles that increasingly few Americans feel the military is a worthy institution. Their response to criticism is always, as a lifetime member of the machine, yeah, maybe that's the problem. No, I mean, think about it. The reason I have an issue with this is I have a daughter and I don't want girls to be drafted one day. He says, basically, you're being told to serve your country when your country and the people who run it hate you, hate or are indifferent to what you love, but you're not allowed to point this out or else you're committing sacrilege. All those veterans committing suicide after being deployed to pointless wars because they enlisted to fight for things leadership doesn't care about. Just the cost of advanced liberalism. And if you don't like it, then you're not a real red-blooded American. No, he's absolutely right. Nothing is done to help those veterans that come back scarred by what they have seen. Nothing is done for them. Um, and, and again, it's like the, the Space Force guy, is his thing is like, oh, as a, a lifetime member, as someone who was 20 years in the Marines and 20 years in this and that. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's the problem, that you're inside that bubble and you don't understand what the rest of the country's concerns about it are and what they really stem from. It's not things like bigotry. It's more like not wanting your daughters to be drafted. Well, exactly. Do you want to be in a foxhole with a uh, transgender? Come on. Right? I, I think everybody knows the answer to that. So um, Josh Hammer says, uh, legal conservatism, always just one nominee away. Oh, yes. I think everybody understands this, right? How we were told how badass ACB was going to be. Oh, rah, rah. She's going to be totally anti-Ginsburg. She's going to be nothing like Ginsburg. We're going to have our own conservative version of RBG. Bullshit. <laughs> She's done nothing. 
So um, there's a link here to a Washington Times article. He says, in case you uh, missed it, my essay last week at uh, Deseret Magazine argues the Fulton case at SCOTUS, this term, has potential to assuage a lot of legal conservatives' angst if the ruling is properly broad. So he's got a link here, too. He says, while we're doing in case you missed it earlier, my argument for why stare deceased norms should not pose a barrier to the court using the Fulton case to overturn employment division versus Smith, among many other examples of old flawed precedent. For legal conservatives tired of perennially losing, I'd suggest taking a look at common good originalism. And so, yeah, what about all of these uh, originalist judges and so-and-so that really have done nothing, right? ACB riles conservatives with moderate rulings. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who was billed as a jurist in the mold of the late conservative icon Justice Antonin Scalia, is raising eyebrows with early rulings in which she sides with the high court's moderates and liberals. Justice Barrett appeared to break with her mentor Scalia, for whom she clerked, when she joined the moderates and liberals on the bench in rejecting a pro-Trump challenge to Pennsylvania's election laws and leaving in place some COVID-19 restrictions on houses of worship. She was President Trump's third high court appointee and has been on the bench for only about four months, not leaving much time for her to craft her own opinions. She cast votes in a few pivotal cases, though, and aligned herself more with the moderate Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh than with conservative colleagues such as Justices Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alito, and Clarence Thomas. I've heard some conservatives express frustration, sort of lump her with Roberts and Kavanaugh, said Kurt Levy, president of the Conservative Committee for Justice. During Justice Barrett's confirmation hearings last year, Democrats pushed her to recuse herself from election-related cases and suggested Mr. Trump nominated her to help his prospects. She declined to say whether she would recuse herself. Just one day after she was sworn in, however, Justice Barrett did not participate in a challenge out of Pennsylvania in which state Republican lawmakers requested that the court expedite their case. The challenge was brought in September. The Republican majority Pennsylvania General Assembly said the state's executive branch altered election laws by challenging by changing the deadline for mail-in ballots and allowing ballots with illegible dates to be counted, which has never before happened. The justices were not involved in the dispute until three days after the election, when Justice Alito ordered Pennsylvania to separate all late-arriving
Sorry, he unplugged me with his foot. <sighs> Anyways, you should be able to hear me now, right? Bobo did it. <laughs> no, that was Pam. <laughs> Don't blame Bobo for that. So, okay. Um, yeah, this is, of course, what's been going on. We we fight for these people like Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Connie Barrett, and this is how we are treated in response. And it's always like this. Anytime a liberal gets a liberal judge or Supreme Court justice, they don't hold back. They don't side with Republicans and moderates. No, they push for things that are far left. They never play this stupid game where these people are just paid to lose. The left doesn't do that. This is constantly on us where we fight for these people, these so-called conservatives and Republicans, and they always stab us in the back. She had the opportunity to have some of these election cases reviewed, and she chose not to do it multiple times, as we've seen. The decision not to hear the much-watched Pennsylvania challenge didn't garner Justice Barrett any points with the left, though. It never does. Trying to appease these people never gives you anywhere. They don't care. They hate you anyway, even if you pander to them, Amy. The Trump election cases were so frivolous and presenting such ludicrous legal theories that it made it easy for even the most conservative and hyper-partisan judge to dismiss those, said Dan Goldberg, legal director at the Liberal Alliance for Justice. I don't read anything into the fact she wasn't willing to hear really frivolous legal claims, says Goldberg of the Liberal Alliance. Another case from early February, the high court struck down California's ban on indoor worship services. Under the 6-3 ruling, California must allow houses of worship to open at 25% capacity. The three Democratic-appointed justices would have kept the ban against indoor church gatherings intact, but the majority agreed to allow indoor services with some limitations. They left a ban in place against singing and chanting, which displeased some conservatives. That is so absurd. It, oh, it's like you're, you're in a big open-air prison. You're allowed to stand six feet apart with a mask on, but don't sing or chant or you're in trouble. Good Lord, how absurd. Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito would have granted the church's request to completely lift the restrictions. Justices Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett kept a prohibition on singing and chanting until the church could show evidence that it could be done safely. What? Or the state permitted secular businesses to allow similar singing and chanting. How stupid. How absolutely stupid. So, anyways, this is how we're always treated, and everybody knows it. We get treated like shit 
by the people that we fight for, donate to, campaign for. We always get stabbed in the back. But the left, they're always pandered to by conservatives and liberals. And anytime they campaign for people and they fundraise for their politicians, they don't get treated the way we get treated. That's very telling. And I think that, you know, we have to um, we have to cut off the money to these people. And the thing that bothers me the most was this argument that we have to the most important thing we could do was get Mitch McConnell's judges installed that would transform the judiciary in the Supreme Court for decades to come, we were told. We were told we would be safeguarding the nation for at least a couple years, right? Remember that? That was a lie. These people have no guts, no spine. They're useless their wastes, getting somebody like that on the judiciary, you might as well elect a liberal. No, you really, you might as well just put a Democrat there. There wouldn't really be a difference. And so this is why I think we have to start vetting people more. Are they America first or not? If it's somebody like ACB, there were warning signs that I pointed out. I like the other girl from, what was it, uh, Arizona, who had strong immigration stuff, right? I forget her name, but she was in the running at one point before all the rhinos pushed for ACB. Oh, she'll be great. How ridiculous. And that should have been the first red flag, right? That all these people kept pushing for her. Oh, she's a Christian. Who gives a damn? Does she act like one? Is she a good Christian? <laughs> I mean, oh, she's got black kids that she adopted. That'll really stick it to the libs. Oh my God. It's that is how emasculated the Republicans are. That'll show the liberals they're the real racists. As if that works, as if pointing out the hypocrisy of the left does anything. We've been doing that for years. And it doesn't matter. Perception is reality for a lot of these people. Pointing out their hypocrisy doesn't mean anything to them because they don't perceive anything wrong with their behavior. So anyways, it's very, um, it's very disappointing these judges that were supposed to be some kind of bulwark against the far left have done nothing. They have conserved nothing. They can't even conserve 
little girls being able to use the bathroom without men dressed up as women going into the bathrooms and potentially abusing them. They can't even conserve women being women and men being men. What do they conserve at all? Does anybody know gays in the conservative party, trannies in the conservative party, a tranny heading up women Republican group in California, a tranny who Rick Grinnell defended. Does anyone see anything wrong with this? A tranny is the head of the female Republicans, a man with a dress and a wig on, is the leader of the female Republicans in California. What exactly is being conserved? (sighs) Apparently just the wallets of the Republican establishment. That's the only thing being conserved. Their net worth. Okay. Yeah, they're all paid off. We all know it. (laughs) It's very disappointing, but I think that it's important that um, we recognize and learn from this. If we don't learn from it, if we keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, then we deserve it. This means that we have to be more involved. This means that we have to vet people more. This means when somebody says, hey, I think that this person probably isn't a good candidate because of this, that you don't immediately attack them as being divisive. You actually listen to what they have to say because they just might be right. I can't tell you how many times I've been called divisive because of discernment. Just to throw that out there. All right, so um, uh, Pedro published this article in Newsweek, the United States of America versus Silicon Valley. I think this is fantastic. We're not going to read the whole thing. We'll read parts of it. Uh, Riots, rallies, and a contested presidential election last year made it easy to to miss the Justice Department's lawsuit against Facebook in December. Silicon Valley's Crown Social Media Network Justice alleges systematically discriminates against hiring qualified Americans in favor of foreign visa-holding workers. Surprise! 
investigators found Facebook creates permanent positions open only to H-1B visa holders while employing deceptive tactics to deliberately avoid hiring Americans. These practices are an open secret in the industry, and the lawsuit sheds light on the systematic nature of the problem. And we've discussed this before, as you all know. Here's how the scheme works. Employers are not required to prove they first sought qualified Americans for jobs they petition H-1B workers to fill, but the employment-based green card sponsorship process does. Because the H-1B is a dual intent, quote unquote, visa, an individual can simultaneously hold a temporary work visa while also seeking permanent residency through an employment-based green card sponsorship by the employer. There is often nothing so permanent as a guest worker program, and Facebook entices temporary visa holders to stay for good. The lawsuit alleges that when a temporary visa worker requests a permanent position to initiate the process of obtaining a green card, Facebook creates a sham job opening, the true purpose of which is to disqualify qualified Americans. In a low-tech twist, the tech giant lists these openings in print publications instead of online. Huh. And applicants submit their applications by snail mail. Why so old school? Because generally, the Department of Labor must certify to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services that there is a shortage of qualified Americans before a company hires a visa worker through the Permanent Labor Certification Program. It must also be shown that a foreign worker's employment will not adversely affect the wages and working conditions of a similarly employed American. The job opening, quote unquote, created by Facebook is merely intended to comply with federal regulations on paper. It looks like Facebook just couldn't find a qualified and available American applicant. So the permanent position went to an H-1B visa holder. What do they do? Like just go around to like a really uh, some part of town and put a put a flyer up on a telephone pole 20 feet up like yeah like, right just so they hey, we said us we said us about our conditions i mean we we you know on paper exactly that's a that's pretty much what this is right i mean no one's seeing this stuff that they're putting out in hardly read print publications and it's all nonsense of course, according to Justice's lawsuit, that's not what really happens. Not surprisingly, the lawsuit alleges Facebook often gets zero applications for these advertised positions. And even when U.S. workers do apply, Facebook will not consider them for the advertised positions. Instead, the company fills these positions exclusively with temporary visa holders. Based on the Justice Department's two-year investigation, Facebook snubbed qualified Americans for over 2,600 jobs, ranging from computer science to art director positions. The lawsuit also refers to the adverse consequences on temporary visa holders by creating an employment relationship that is not on equal terms. 
The H-1B is employer-specific, allowing an individual to work only for the employer that recruited the visa holder. Due to their limited job mobility, visa workers are more likely to remain with the company until they can adjust status, which for, which for some can be decades. So this is essentially a slave labor scheme. Um, I have known people who have friends that are that are basically foreign visa people that come here on a H-1B visa thinking that they're going to like get the American dream or something. But what ends up happening is that these Silicon Valley tech companies hold their green cards. They don't get them. They are held over their head in a coercive manner. And they're told if you don't put in 60 hour a week, you know, 60 hours a week, if you don't do this and that, we're going to essentially send you back, right? We're going to revoke the position. You're going to lose your green card and you'll have to go back. So this is essentially a slave labor scheme, okay? Because they're using coercive methods to keep them there once they get there. It's very similar to what happens to these young girls who think that they're going to, you know, get catch a a ride over the border with a coyote and they'll be able to get a job in America and live the American dream and maybe even send some money back to their families in Mexico and they end up being thrown into a sex slave operation where they're chained to a bed and raped several times a day over and over again. And the threat is always, if you try to go for help, they're going to know that you're an illegal. And these girls can't get out once they're part of the cartel coyote networks. They have no way to. So it's a very similar thing that's going on here with Silicon Valley. It's all about slave labor. So this is very sad. Put simply, employers can intimidate and exploit H-1B visa holders more easily than American workers because visa holders cannot simply quit their jobs if they're being mistreated or if they you know, realize, okay, I actually don't enjoy doing this. Visa holding workers are willing to put up with abuse because of the possibility of a green card. But most importantly, the investigation reveals the Department of Labor has no way of preventing this abuse by companies like Facebook because everything transpires within established legal and bureaucratic frameworks. On the one hand, Congress requires DOL to approve all H-1B labor condition applications within seven days. So long as paperwork is filled out correctly, the DOL can only check for obvious errors and inaccuracies and post-approval review is prohibited. So the H-1Bs essentially just get rubber stamped. On the other hand, the PERM process, which is supposed to be a proper testing of the labor market, wherein companies identify a worker and advertise a position, is also being gamed, as the Justice Department learned. Thus, the entire domestic wage protection system with the H-1B program is a meaningless 
paper shuffling exercise that provides window dressing for American workers' legalized displacement. As disturbing as this is, the lawsuit is merely a confirmation of what labor and immigration activists on both the left and right have known for years. Our goal is clearly not to find a qualified and interested U.S. worker, said Lawrence Lebowitz, an attorney with Cohen and Grigsby at a conference in 2007. And, you know, in a sense that may sound funny, but it's what we're trying to do here. We're complying with the law fully, but our objective is to get this person a green card and to get through the labor certification process. Lebowitz spoke to employers uh, then about how to avoid hiring American workers while complying with federal rules requiring positions to be advertised in the U.S. before seeking foreign worker visas. He reiterated that the goal is to comply with the law while doing everything possible not to find qualified and interested American worker applicants. And where a qualified candidate to be found, Lebowitz's colleague explained managers should find any legal basis to disqualify him or her for that position. In most cases, that doesn't seem to be a problem. The no-problem attitude about systematic discrimination persists today. Speaking to Business Insider, Kim Clark, an immigration attorney at Varnum LLP, explained, uh, complained that Justice's lawsuit is unfair toward Facebook. She said that the company had, as Lebowitz put it, fully complied with the law in discriminating against hiring Americans. Technically, Clark is right. Facebook, like every other major employer utilizing the H-1B program, can discriminate against Americans while still abiding by the Immigration Act of 1990. Clark and Facebook are thus effectively both saying Facebook cheated fair and square and shouldn't be punished for that. The Justice Department disagrees and considers this to be a violation of American civil rights. The perpetuation of the immigration status quo is morally unjustifiable, and virtually every argument for maintaining it melts away in light of the relevant facts. For example, there is no critical labor shortage justifying the mass import of visa workers demanded by the tech industry and its allies. An analysis by Hal Salzman, a professor at Rutgers University, found the United States had between 95,500 and 143,000 IT job openings in 2018 that generally went to candidates with a bachelor's degree or higher in computer science or engineering. The data also show that permanent residents earned about 100,000 degrees in computer science or related engineering fields. Reporting on these findings, Bloomberg editor Rachel Rosenthal added that, quote, unlike in law or medicine, in technology, you don't need a computer science degree to work. In fact, two-thirds of new entrants in IT occupations major in other disciplines, unquote. She also noted that there are nearly two million co college graduates each year. In other words, Americans can fill most openings. Moreover, those jobs not filled create a tight labor market, which means better wages, 
wages for workers whose labor is in demand. Apart from the labor shortage myth, another common justification for mass visas is that visa workers are simply more skilled than their American counterparts. But an analysis of data from the Program for International Assessment of Adult Competencies, as highlighted by the Center for Immigration Studies, suggests otherwise. According to CIS, foreign-educated immigrants with a college or advanced degree perform poorly in both literacy and computer operations, scoring at the same level as Americans with only a high school diploma. One in six foreign degree holders scores below base sick in numeracy. These skill disparities persist even after foreign degree holders have had at least five years in the United States to learn English. Rosenthal also cites research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that evince a similar trend. Researchers found American college seniors majoring in computer science substantially outperform their counterparts in China, India, and Russia. America for now still produces bright minds in ample quantities and has no real need for, quote, highly skilled, unquote, visa workers who are often anything but. Nevertheless, American genius counts for nothing when we disadvantage our own to feed a machine that demands cheap labor above all else. We're going to leave off here for now and move on to something else, but I want you to understand that what this article is saying is that it is now enshrined in law to discriminate against American workers, just like how we saw at Harvard University that whites and Asians were being systematically discriminated against. Now we see all Americans are equally discriminated against in Silicon Valley. So where, who is really being systematically oppressed? It certainly seems to be white Americans and American workers. It's not minorities who are given special privileges and given legs up at Ivy League universities, who are currently discriminating against Asian Americans and white Americans. So this myth of systemic oppression and white supremacy is a lie, quite obviously. All right. So I want to move on now to something else. Um, we're going to look at uh, the um, article that I published earlier today. It's uh, called Into the Storm. Fair and balanced Q documentary with a question mark because we don't know yet, right? Um, we, we think it's going to be and we hope it will. There comes a time after a multitude of mainstream media hit pieces about you riddled with lies, defamation, libel, and slander that you want a chance to get your side of the story out there. 
This is almost impossible due to the fact that the mainstream media will never give you a fair shake. They will always lie to you, pretend to be on your side to gain your trust, only to portray you in the worst possible light. This is why, for years, Patriot Soapbox, Pamphlet, and I have never spoken to the mainstream media. We have never participated in their propaganda, nor given them the time of day. Each time they approached us to try to get us to talk, we always responded with, we do not speak to fake news, as that is exactly what they are. This all changed when Jim and Ron Watkins contacted us and told us there was a documentary filmmaker, Colin Hoback, who was interested in doing a piece about Q and Anons. They told us this was the only person they trusted to present it in a fair way and showed us a prior documentary Colin made called Terms and Conditions May Apply. This documentary from 2013 is fantastic and it delves into issues of informed consent, privacy, and the way governments use social media to spy on citizens. The documentary is, prevent, is presented in a fair way and is extremely well done. In a sense, it, it was way ahead of its time. I'm going to play um, this uh, clip, I guess the trailer for Terms and Conditions. Doing a privacy change for 350 million users yeah. is, is a really, you know, it's, it's not, a, Paint, not the type painful, of thing yeah. that a lot of companies would do. We decided that these would be the social norms now, and we, we just went for it. Google is effectively a $500 a year service because that's the value of the data that you're providing. If they use 10% of that data, they're going to be the most valuable company ever. Companies that you've never heard of claim to have about 1,500 points of data on the average American citizen. Is it hard to go through it and actually find specific details about a person? No, that's super easy. Within a couple of minutes, you can figure out what people voted for, what psychological problems they have, what parties they've been to. They're saying it's because I agreed to the latest terms and conditions on iTunes. No one has read the terms and conditions. No one in the world. To the extent there have been contract decisions, they've held that these terms and conditions are valid. And what if your phone came with these long terms and conditions said, well, if you use the phone, the government can wiretap you? That would be insane. But that's the kind of world we're living in. Anything that's been digitized is not private. And that is terrifying. For the government to get information from a Google or a Facebook is a lot easier than the government doing it itself and putting a wiretap on our phones. You have to put these powers into somebody's hands. Like social networks in recent times. If you have something that you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Well, that's always what scared me was, if there's some sort of automated system that just red flags you based on the search term. You can see that surveillance measures are being used to silence protests before they even happen. Boom, NYPD SWAT, bulletproof vests on, their guns drawn. And I was like, are you being serious? Are you actually holding me because of a tweet? So we were locked away in Lewisham Police Station for 25 hours. All these powerful institutions, they're not subject to the same, the same invasions of privacy as uh, the rest of us are. So far, the population seems fine with it. Um, if they weren't, I, they know who to call.
Okay, so as you can see, that does not necessarily um, look at these big tech companies and Silicon Valley in the um, in the best light, right? It's a very um, very good documentary, and I I suggest if you haven't watched it to try to go watch the entire thing, right? Um, I I recommend it. I watched it. I thought it was fantastic. So. Uh, you, you can watch the above trailer for the film to see the type of work Colin has done to get a sense of his approach to the subject. I encourage you to watch the entire documentary as it is very much spot on. And I feel it honestly deserves a sequel. Colin seemed to have an understanding of the important issues behind free speech, the ability to control your own data, the exploitation of users by social media companies and governments, and importantly, that the media doesn't always tell you the truth. There is a scene at the end of the film in which Cullen attempts to confront Mark Zuckerberg about this. Being the coward that he is, Zuckerberg just runs off. It is a fitting end to a film that explored who Zuckerberg really is versus the way he presents himself in his company. My view of Hoback's earlier work encouraged my thinking that of all the people who are attempting to cover the Q phenomenon, Colin Hoback was the one who seemed to understand the importance of the internet and of free speech, who was the most talented, and who appeared to have the personal integrity to tell this story in a fair way. After thinking about it deeply, and considering that it could very well end up being some sort of setup, we decided to participate in it, given our trust Cullen would give it the most justice. He came out to film over a year ago, spent the night at our home, filming only for about a day or so. We have no idea if our small part will even make it into the documentary or how we will be presented. It is our hope that Mr. Hoback will have put together something more fair than others have done. Code Monkey, aka Ron Watkins, recently addressed the release with the following messages on Telegram. Quote, over the past few years, I was followed around by Cullen Hoback as he filmed a documentary about online free speech. We discussed lots of topics, and it seems the documentary is going to be released in a week or so. I've turned down hundreds of interview requests from the world's top publications over the past few years, knowing that one day this documentary would be released, unquote. Ron then goes on to post the following link to the trailer for the six-part series that will premiere on March 21st, 2021. Anybody, I'll show them Q-proofs and say, look, talk me out of it. Have, Have you, you heard, heard of the Q? The what? QAnon? What had started in an online forum had crawled out from behind the screen to the seat of power, all with the help of a single letter. And we're going to win big. You just watch. In 2018, I set out to chart Q's origins. I wrote the first part of 8chan while I was coming off of psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> You can really find yourself falling down a hole trying to find out who Q is. I'm pretty sure Q is a spin-off from Star Trek. 
cute as ever you want it to be. Sometimes they'll even think it's me. I have a question. You're going through a possible list of who Q might be. That's right. <laughs> You're on the list. Well, let's continue then. Dangerous ideas. That's a scary idea. People conspiracy theorize about things that they think are powerful. What have we conspired against? Followers try to discredit reporters because we're required to find out if it's true or not. It seems like Q's gone mainstream. They don't care about other people dying. They're lunatics running the asylum. You can't expect to get counterpunched. We, we have to go. We need to move. Game over. This Q thing is just exponential growth. I think people are worried it's going to be used to radicalize more people. Do you think that that is warranted? Jim got cleaned up. <laughs> um, obviously, the trailer is designed to um, appeal to everybody on all sides of it, right? It's obviously kind of dramatic and stuff. Um, but I really do think that he is going to... It's it's not going to be what you think. I don't think it's going to be like a, a cut-and-dry hit piece, like the Vice people tried to pull. Um, and I, I think that because... Um, he seen when he was here and we were talking, I mean, he looked at my binder and stuff where I have all the letters from you guys, listeners that have sent me all these different letters and stuff that I put together this book of all these different letters. And he said he never saw anything like it out of any of the other like Q people he had interviewed. Nobody had put together something like that. And he was reading some of the letters and stuff. And he seemed to like think that that very... Um, very moving, I guess. <laughs> I didn't, I did not get the sense from him that he was going to try to do some kind of hit piece. However, I don't think he's going to be explicitly pro Q either. I think that what he's trying to do is to present all sides of the story in an unbiased manner so that the viewer can make up their own minds. Um, that's, that's what I think, uh, where he's going with this. So the documentary spans about three years as Cullen attempted to get to the truth of who or what is behind the Q phenomena. I have yet to see any of it except all sides of this from a balanced perspective. Ron Watkins then followed with another message providing a little more background information. Quote, some more background info about the documentary. We filmed it over the course of about three years, and it was a personal passion project of Cullen. Cullen had previously done some fine documentaries on subjects that I felt were great, and he did a good job of staying unbiased while telling stories as they are, without putting spin or judgment on the content. I haven't yet seen this documentary that will be released in a few weeks, but I know that Cullen is probably one of the only filmmakers in the world who can tell the real story in a fair way and make it work. Just for disclosure, I was not paid to be interviewed or give my likeness to the documentary. I participated because I felt Cullen to be the most capable person to tell this story. Also, the fact that HBO is publishing this documentary is news to me. While filming, I just knew it as Cullen's personal project. If I had to guess, I'd say he likely got sponsored by HBO at a late stage when everything was almost finished. 
So obviously the same goes for Pamphlet and me. We were not paid to participate, nor did we know HBO would be involved. And again, I don't think they were. I think they simply chose to publish it and sponsor it after it was basically done. I still trust Cullen will do a better job than anyone else could do given the circumstances. I look forward to seeing how this all turned out. We did keep our participation in this secret as we had no idea when this was going to be released and sort of wanted it to be a surprise. I hope the Anons are finally given the respect and fair treatment they deserve. I hope that this helps tell the real story and show that we're not all crazy, dangerous conspiracy theorists. But even if it does, well, it's people who brave uncharted territory that end up changing the world. So as the series, is it, um, it's so six parts, but how long are the parts? I don't know yet, um, but if I had to guess, I would say probably at least an hour. hour long. <laughs> no, hour long. Well, probably well, an hour long. Well, if he it's did a hour, lot of filming. Well, that well, that's and that, I think maybe that could be ultimately why he chose that format of of episodic versus just a you know two hour documentary because if he felt like he had to present it fairly, I think mm-hmm. you'd want to see more stuff, right? Yeah, and so you this, want to give this, each so this people like the same them, time. Basically, mm-hmm. gets gets the directors cut out there as opposed to like a you know a chopped up version. You know, yeah, I think that's true, and I think that he probably wanted to give everybody like equal time, right? Like if he's going to be interviewing a bunch of people that were involved in Q, people who were like bakers or people who were on YouTube very early on covering Q, he probably wanted to give equal time to the mainstream media folks who are against Q, just to have so that it's like. So it's not favoring one perspective or one party over another. You know what I mean? So I think it should be interesting. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to watching it. I'm wondering, oh, snap, does this mean I have to pay for HBO for a month? (laughs) You know? Oh, my goodness. It could be worth it, though, just to see how this turned out. Um, I'm very excited to see who all makes it into this because uh, I, I felt like, you know, I when he was here, I asked him, like, are you going to go talk to Penny and Breadbox and all these other folks? And he said he was going to try. So that should be um, that should be interesting just to be able to, to see people telling their side, but in a way to kind of like... Um, being presented in a way that isn't simply going to be a hit piece on them because I think up until now, every single like documentary on Q or whatever has been negative and it's been purposely made to make people look crazy. They will take the worst, like, you know, you guys know what they'll do. If you go and talk to these people, like the 60 minutes one, the people who went and talked to 60 minutes for their little documentaries and stuff, they took the footage that would portray those folks in the most negative light, right? To try to make them look crazy. So I think that this is going to be at least that a one time where they're not presented in a way that it attempts to put them in the worst light possible. I think he's just going to present people as they are and let the audience make up their own minds. And I think that honestly is the, is the best way to do it. Cause that's real journalism. It's point counterpoint. And you let 
the reader or the audience decide what argument is best. That's how it should be. Okay, so <laughs> anyways, um, let's see. What did I want to bring up next? Oh, yes. Okay. So for the last 10 minutes here, and you should find this interesting pinata, I wanted to cover this article, um, how to detect controlled opposition. <laughs> this is a good one, obviously, given um, what we're what we're talking about, the um, what we're in right now, right? Uh, good Lord. So, um, quote, we shall set up our own opposition. Our real opponents at heart will accept this simulated opposition as their own and show us their cards. Our subjects will be convinced of the existence of full freedom of speech. That comes from the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. That's uh, protocol uh, 1211 from the late 19th century. Now, there's an uh, argument about, um, about whether or not the protocols are real or not. Now, most of those arguments say that they are forgeries, which again, I find interesting. Okay, so is it a forgery of an original? What does that mean, forgery, first of all? Second of all, if the protocols line up with what we see happening today, someone is following them, does that make sense? So if you haven't read the protocols, I suggest that you do because they are extremely disturbing and it certainly seems like somebody is following the protocols of the elders of Zion to a T. So this is written by Anno Domini. He says, all controlled opposition are shills, but not all shills are controlled opposition. Some shills are just shills. <laughs> if this makes sense, everyone shills for their worldview to one degree or another. In general, there is nothing wrong with this. We see our worldview as the best and naturally want the rest of the world to adopt it in order to make the world a better place. Of course, our worldview might not be what's best for everyone, but we believe this type of shilling is honest and natural, so long as the one shilling their worldview is transparent about it. An example would be somebody who is like um, someone who's like a conservative uh, in conservative talk radio. They are open and honest about their own bias, right? It's not like your uh, MSDNC pretending to be. Um, <laughs> Like real journalism, you know what I mean? So they're openly like taking a side, if that makes sense. So yes, they're shilling in a sense, but at least they're being transparent about the fact that they're shilling a particular product or worldview. But what about all those shills who keep their worldview secret from others yet continue to shill for it. This is when shilling becomes highly suspect. After all, why would someone want to keep their worldview a secret from others? 
someone may have honest reasons for secrecy, especially with increasing public censorship of unpopular opinions. This is totally understandable. However, this covert kind of shilling can be exploited to install controlled opposition operatives as part of counterintelligence operations of foreign and or hostile groups. Therefore, it becomes necessary to be able to detect these dangerous shills so as to be able to neutralize their shilling and hopefully expose their true motive to the public. So a good example of this is, um, you know, the, the people who are pretending to have been Q supporters, but really aren't, if this makes sense. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to name names, right, or like call people out, but they jump on the bandwagon of like whatever is popular because they're simply interested in making money. They may not actually be a Q fan or supporter at all, but they will pretend to be. They'll act like one. They'll do it if they can earn money doing it. But the minute that they aren't able to make money shilling for that thing, they'll jump on to the next one, right? We've all seen this. We've all seen the bandwagon jumpers on that are simply interested in uh, monetizing and profiting from a topic, uh, whether that be Q um, or anything else. It could be America First, the MAGA movement. You guys get what I'm talking about, right? Um, the following are a list of tools you can use to hopefully detect and neutralize controlled opposition shills, pattern recognition process, gather data, clean it from the noise, examine for similarities, group data into segments, analyze those segments, and implement insights what insights do you gain from after doing that and then implement it so patterns the primary method to detect controlled opposition shills is in the patterns they exhibit or exist in their lives no matter how clever controlled opposition is they will always exhibit one or more patterns it is our job to recognize these patterns we want to look for patterns in their narratives which ones they promote and which ones they ignore. We want to look for patterns in the guests they use to advance their shilling message. We also want to look for patterns in the suspected shills associates, as the saying goes, those of a feather flock together. Note, finding only scant patterns without other corroborating patterns does not necessarily make one controlled opposition. So be cautious. Above all, be objective. Uh, a clear example of this would be Alex Jones, right? Um, he, that's an obvious one. But um, I think that you guys understand this. There's a certain group of people that, um, you know, they form sort of like cliques. And these little online clicks cover like their, they create like sort of like a niche topic, right? And they won't talk about or cover other things. You'll see some of those people refuse to talk about Israel and Zionism, right? 
or whatever it is, there are certain topics that are essentially off limits to them. And that's the first uh, pattern, right? That somebody is potentially controlled opposition. You know, if you look at the soapbox, there's not really any kind of topic that I'm not willing to talk about. There's not something that I purposely ignore or don't want to touch. I'm willing to pretty much explore anything and give it a fair airing or hearing. Background. We want to look for patterns in the suspected controlled opposition operatives history. Now, this isn't always possible, especially if they are, for example, still anonymous and haven't been doxxed yet. Uh, David Seaman is a shill. Yes, he is. <laughs> um, especially if they're mysterious and secretive character, if they are a mysterious and secretive character. But when it is possible, dig deep in their history and look for patterns in their education, family, associates, employment, religion, etc. It shouldn't be difficult to find patterns in a dangerous shell's background. Gee, like maybe being a former NATO psychological warfare operator. If the suspect has even remote connections to the intelligence world, big business, lobbyists, we should narrow in even deeper, looking for patterns. Finally, the suspect's birth could also help corroborate other patterns. For example, uh, if the su suspect is born Jewish, a red flag should go up in your mind. However, being Jewish alone without cooperating patterns is not indicative of controlled opposition. You need to keep digging or dismiss the subject as controlled opposition. Popularity. A popular character is not necessarily a shill, but it is a strong indicator whenever discovered alongside other patterns of shillery. The more popular a character, the greater chance there is of controlled opposition. After all, in this antichrist system of deception, the devils appearing as angels of light are made stars and given riches and success as a reward for their treason against God and his creation. In contrast, truth tellers are typically marginalized and censored, as were the Hebrew prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, who condemned the Jews for their self-worship and idol and worship of idols. On that note, being censored alone does not clear anyone of suspicion of controlled opposition. So tread softly around this pattern. Many mistakenly believe censorship connotes legitimacy. If someone is censored, yet there are other, one or more other patterns of controlled opposition, then censorship could be designed to further mask their true agenda. Remember when they deplatformed Alex Jones? It had gotten to the point where Alex had pretty much been outed, right? Q had talked about him and free speech systems, uh, and it was pretty much like, okay, th there's something going on with this guy. And then what happens? Boom. They immediately deplatform him. 
that was designed to try to give him back an air of legitimacy. Oh, they're trying to silence him, right? But he was never really totally deplatformed. Immediately, some Israeli set up Band.video for him, and he always had his website, his products. He didn't lose any money, right? It was a symbolic deplatforming. So think about it in that way. In other words, the censorship itself is controlled opposition involving controlled opposition. Don't sweat it, though. It might seem complex at first, but once you begin practicing looking for patterns, it gets much easier. And then uh, it continues. Um, we're at the top of the hour. We're going to leave off there. But um, before I pass this over, the final thing I'll say on this is, remember, Hillary Clinton publicly named Alex Jones. Do you remember when she called him out? Um, she, she said something about, well, something or other, Alex Jones. And he used to play that clip uh, all the time as like a badge of honor, right? But it's interesting, right? Because... This is a diversionary tactic. Hillary Clinton had many other critics besides Alex Jones that were far more credible, right? She didn't call them out. So she's, she's calling attention to Alex because she doesn't want you looking at people like Larry Nichols or others who have called her out but have actual dirt on her. So um, anyways, uh, we're going to leave it there. Um, I... I you should read the rest of that article. Uh, that is on, what is this called? At fitsinfo.net. It's called How to Detect Controlled Opposition. And I encourage you guys to read the rest of that because um, it, it really is a pretty good methodology for thinking about if I want to know if somebody could be potentially controlled opposition or not. Well, these are the things that you look for, right? It kind of gives you these red flags. This is something that that is questionable, if that makes sense. All right. <laughs> We're passing it over to Sunny Days now. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what a day. <laughs> yes. And the news cycle is just on the negative, you know, with oh uh, Biden giving yeah. a speech tonight. And just it feels like we're on kind of a negative cycle. Yeah, I think good, so. Good news, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I have to say, um, for folks that I'll, I will drop the link to that article, how about that? Um, so that you guys can pull that up and finish reading that on your own. I have to say, like, for folks that are worried that, like, that documentary is going to be like a hit piece or something, look, I wouldn't worry about it too much. If they were going to do a hit piece, they would have done it regardless whether or not we participated. It would just be one more hit piece out there. You know, I think that based on his other work, like terms and conditions may apply. It, he seems to be somebody that would be fair. You know, if, if we're judging by his other work, I want to give him a chance. And, you know, I haven't seen any of this yet. Uh, it I'll, it'll be new to me. <laughs> like just when you guys are watching it for the first time, that'll be the first time I'm seeing it. So I want to give this guy a chance 
you know, if they're going to do hit pieces, they're going to do hit pieces, whether or not you're involved or not. One other hit piece is it's not nothing really when you consider how many, just how many there are smearing us, right? If we have that one chance to have the story told fairly, why not? And again, this was somebody recommended by Code Monkey, and this was the only person he was willing to talk to. He, like us, turned down all of these people when they came asking to participate in their nonsense, whether it be 60 Minutes or Vice or NBC. It, w it was always, no, we don't speak to fake news. The fact that we were willing to talk to this guy should give you um, some confidence that he's at least, at the very least, going to be unbiased about it, um, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, Neopsy says, Larry Nichols did the Clinton Chronicles documentary, If Memory Serves Me. Yes, I think that's what it was, the Clinton Chronicles. Um, and Billy says, all news is good news in marketing. That is true. <laughs> all right. So um, I'm passing it over to you now, Sunny Days. You okay. guys have a good one. All right. Bye. Thanks. Thanks, Radix. Have a good night. You too. All right, everyone. Hello. Hope you're all doing well. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start off with this video. Um, again, it just inspires me, um, just the words in it. Um, so let's see. Gonna grab the share. Got the share. And I just love these words. I just like listening to them over and over. If I give you to hold in your hearts today it's this treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation relish the opportunity to be an outsider because it's the outsiders who change the world and who make a real and lasting difference the more that a broken system tells you that you're wrong the more certain you should be that you must keep pushing ahead. You must keep pushing forward. So if you're feeling like an outsider and you're feeling like the broken system keeps telling you you're wrong, keep pushing 